Welcome to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine, advancing medicine through precision diagnostics and novel therapies. Your host is Dr. Lee Friedman. According to the American Cancer Society, about 10,000 pituitary tumors are diagnosed each year in the United States. What is the state-of-the-art approach to the diagnosis and treatment of these tumors? I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and with me today is Dr. Sean Grady, the Charles Harrison Frazier Professor and Chairman of the Department of Neurosurgery at the Perlman School of Medicine, University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Grady, thank you for being with us. Thanks for asking me. Well, in terms of pituitary tumors, how common are they and, and in what kind of patients should we be looking for this problem? So they're actually much more common than people realize. Um, in fact, if you do MRI scans on 100 people, in about five of those people, you'll find a pituitary tumor or some kind of other finding within that region of the brain. Um, so it's actually quite common, though obviously the majority of them have caused no symptoms and are, don't have any problems associated with them. And are thus most of these found incidentally when uh, scans are done for other reasons? Well, a significant number these days are now found uh, on scans performed for other reasons. They're incidentalomas or, or things that are just identified. And then we get consulted as to what to do with the problem. There's still a significant number of patients who have endocrinologic problems or have visual problems, and then imaging is ordered and a pituitary tumor is identified, and those are ones that are causing clear-cut problems. And I'm an internist. I, I'm ordering many more testosterone levels that then have to be followed up with LH and prolactin. Has that uh, resulted in any increase in these kind of findings? It definitely has. And we, so we see quite commonly men who are identified as having low testosterone uh, the rest of the endocrinologic workup is normal, but a brain MRI scan is obtained, and something is found in the in the region of the pituitary gland. And the anatomically, the region is called the cella tersica or the cella. And uh, then, you know, we're asked to uh, comment and see the patient and determine what ought to be done. And in terms of uh, the primary presentation, if one is not found incidentally, are there particular signs or symptoms that should alert a doctor? Hey, this could be a pituitary problem. Well, it, it, that's true. There are some uh, some things that are common uh, in more common in men or women. For example, it's true that pituitary tumors can cause uh, a, a decrease in testosterone in men, and they can cause infertility in women. And usually, uh, in the workup uh, for either infertility or low testosterone, uh, a prolactin is ordered, and if that prolactin is significantly elevated, that usually indicates a pituitary tumor. There are other um, slightly more uncommon endocrinologic problems that are associated with pituitary tumors. The one is, that's actually quite commonly known in the public is acromegaly, scientism. So when a pituitary tumor produces too much growth hormone as a child, the individual will grow to extraordinary heights, um, six and a half, seven feet, or even taller than that. Um, those are pretty uncommon in childhood, however. Um, when a, an adult has a pituitary tumor that's producing growth hormone, it produces a disorder called acromegaly. And the way it presents is a combination of different findings. Uh, the person's hand size will change, and so their rings will no longer fit, and their feet will grow so their shoes don't fit. They'll have trouble with snoring. They'll develop um, diabetes. They'll develop carpal tunnel syndrome. And so when you see a constellation of these things, you start to think, well, maybe there's some kind of general theme that's going across the whole, um, the whole spectrum that's causing all of these, these things. There's a very common facial appearance because the person's nose enlarges and their jaw enlarges, and that's why they, they get into sleep apnea problems. 
Very interesting. And I imagine sometimes this is noted by a friend or a loved one that there are these uh, changes in, in how the patient appears. Sometimes by a, a friend or loved one, but more commonly by somebody who they haven't seen for a while. Changes occur slowly over a period of, of years, really, several years, two, three, four years. And uh, and in the course of a conversation, the person will come and say, gee, you know, you've, you know, you, you've, you've changed quite a bit over these last three or four years. Um, it's um, it's really remarkable when you see something like a driver's license photo, for example, from like four years ago compared to the present, that there's a significant change in the facial appearance. So that that's one kind of, of pituitary tumor that's producing abnormal hormones. I mentioned briefly another one that produces prolactin, and prolactin is a, a, a hormone that's produced as part of pregnancy that goes up uh, to at the end of pregnancy to assist with lactation. But when there are abnormally high levels of prolactin, it can cause um, amenorrhea in women and occasionally can cause um, uh, breast milk secretion, galactorrhea in men. So that's a, a, a cause. Those are some of the symptoms that a prolactin-producing tumor can create. And finally, there's one other uh, hormonally-producing tumor um, that is actually named for a, 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 the neurosurgeon who founded really, neurosurgery, it's Cushing. Uh, it's Cushing's uh, disease or mm-hmm. syndrome. And um, in those patients, uh, too much uh, hormone uh, is produced. The, the hormone is called ACTH. And that particular hormone works on the adrenal glands to produce um, cortisol. And cortisol is a normal hormone that's produced by all of us, and it, it circulates in the body. It's, it's increased at times of stress. Um, it actually goes up and down during the course of the day. Um, but the problem is when it's produced in abnormally high concentrations, it has a whole series of different findings on the patient. So they will develop diabetes. They will develop osteoporosis. They'll develop um, abnormal collections of fat, particularly in the stomach and in the back of the neck. Uh, they're, they'll have muscle wasting. They'll be more um, susceptible to um, infections. Uh, for you know, flu and so forth. So you actually see that in patients today who are given steroids for other reasons and on a continuous basis, having high-dose steroids for weeks and weeks at a time. They develop what's called Cushing syndrome, which is the clinical syndrome I described. Cushing's disease is caused by a pituitary gland tumor that produces ACTH, which drives the adrenal glands. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and joining me today is Dr. Sean Grady, Chairman of the Department of Neurosurgery at the Perlman School of Medicine, University of Pennsylvania. So a lot of these are found incidentally, others because of the particular uh, clinical syndromes that they cause. Uh, If there is one that is found incidentally, is there a panel of uh, hormonal tests that should be ordered? Yes, there's a hormone panels that include measuring uh, serum prolactin, serum cortisol, the growth hormone levels, the ACTH levels, uh, the uh, LH and FSH levels. With growth hormone, um, it also has a, a, a pattern of, uh, of different levels. And so a better hormone to order is called uh, IGF-1. IGF-1 is the hormone level to check. Uh, it's actually produced in the liver, and it's a stable hormone that doesn't fluctuate during the day like uh, growth hormone does. 
And then I imagine, depending on whether these are secreting uh, hormones or not, you involved an endocrinologist, or are there other specialists that are required to treat these? Well, we always involve an endocrinologist, particularly if we're considering that surgery is going to be necessary because there's going to be some endocrinologic involvement uh, both in the hospital and following surgery. In the cases of a small tumor uh, that's only two or three millimeters in size uh, and it's not producing any abnormal hormones, you wouldn't necessarily need to see an endocrinologist right away because it's not having any effect. If, if it is showing abnormal hormone levels, then obviously an endocrinologist, particularly somebody who is very comfortable dealing with pituitary diseases uh, uh, should be involved because there are going to be some special tests that are going to be ordered, particularly around growth hormone secreting tumors and ACTH producing tumors. And then in terms of prolactin secreting tumors, that can be managed medically with bromocryptine? That is the one tumor that is very well managed medically so far. So if, if a person comes to us with a significantly elevated prolactin, um, my first... Um, statement to them is good news. You don't need an operation. Medicine's going to take care of this. And the drug we use now um, is cabergoline, also called Parladel. Um, and it's a long-lasting drug, so the person only needs to take the drug twice a week. Um, the side effects are typically relatively small. Uh, nausea or vomiting is the common thing that happens, and that's not very common anyway. So, so everybody who has a prolactin-producing tumor is started on cabergoline. And in most cases, the, the, the prolactin level drops to normal and the tumor shrinks. It, can, it may be pressing on the optic nerve or causing other mass, prop, mass effects, but the drug will cause the tumor to shrink down so that the, it, it becomes very, very small. It's not, it doesn't go away, but it, uh, it shrinks it down and generally resolves any other clinical symptoms the patient might be having. Excellent. And, and then for uh, tumors that secrete other hormones or non-secreting uh, tumors, what options do we have? So the first line of therapy for the other tumors, besides prolactin-producing tumors, is surgery. There are medications that can be effective in growth hormone-secreting tumors as well as ACTH-producing tumors that cause Cushing's disease. But those drugs are, uh, uh, can be very expensive. Um, they um, are somewhat less effective uh, than, for example, cabergoline, which is highly effective. Um, and so the first line uh, is surgery, um, and that is done endoscopically today um, through the nose. So these are all transnasal approaches without making any incisions and working through the nasal cavity to take the tumor out. And risk with that? Do you uh, risk uh, visual uh, sequelae after that? So fortunately, the risk from this kind of surgery is, is pretty low. There are some nasal complications. We work closely with otolaryngologists to minimize any of those particular problems. But once you start taking the tumor out, the risk of damage to the carotid artery, which is right next to the tumor, or the optic nerve, which is usually just above the tumor, or even the pituitary gland itself is, is really low. So a major complication such as loss of vision or stroke or double vision is around 1%. In about 5% of cases, patients will need some kind of endocrinologic replacement after our surgery if they didn't need it ahead of time. So that's why we always have an endocrinologist involved before we go into surgery. And we're talking levothyroxine and, and steroid hormones? It could be a combination of things. So, for example, um, uh, you're right, thyroid replacement hormone, sometimes uh, having to take um, uh, hydrocortisone on a daily basis, 
Um, if a person comes into us with low hormones to start off with, for example, let's say they're diagnosed with low testosterone and we find out that their FSH and LH are low, uh, which cause the production of testosterone, we're probably not going to be able to repair it by, by taking out the tumor. The gland itself may not respond and start producing the normal amounts of FSH and LH again. It may well need, has a high probability of needing replacement testosterone. And then at what point uh, do you consider other types of therapies uh, such as radiation or any other medical therapies? So sometimes tumor is left behind because it's too dangerous to take out. The, the, some of the anatomic structures adjacent to the pituitary gland include the cavernous sinus, and that's where the carotid artery is. So the tumor cells can actually go into the cavernous sinus, and so we are unable to take those out of there. And after surgery, you'll see residual tumor. Um, under that circumstance, the patients have several options. The first is simply repeat imaging uh, on a yearly basis to see if the tumor grows or uh, to use radiation treatment. And that radiation treatment could be any of it, a number of different modalities ranging from uh, conventional radiotherapy given five times a day for five weeks to proton beam to gamma knife, which is single-dose uh, radiosurgery. Are there particular radio approaches you prefer at Penn, or it depends on the individual situation? It does depend a lot on the individual situation, meaning it, how much tumor is left behind. Is it pressing on the optic nerve? Um, sometimes, for example, we're not able to cure a person who is producing abnormal hormones through surgery, so, and they may have trouble with medication, so we'll try and cure them with radiation. So it, it does vary uh, uh, quite a bit, depending on the situation. Are, are these tumors ever malignant, or do they ever present in a more catastrophic, dramatic fashion? Really unusual for them to be malignant. Uh, can it happen? Yes, but that's very rare. Um, there are other kinds of problems that can show up in the pituitary gland. For example, rarely different forms of cancer, such as thyroid cancer or breast cancer, can metastasize to the pituitary gland, but that's a very unusual occurrence. When I see a pituitary tumor, um, I typically tell the patient, look, this thing may grow at a rate of two to three millimeters per year. Sometimes it doesn't grow at all. We just watch them. Um, so if it's a small tumor not causing any problems, uh, my typical approach is simply just repeat imaging in six months to a year and see if it changes at all. Now, there are rare occasions when a pituitary tumor can hemorrhage, and that's called pituitary apoplexy. It causes a, uh, a thunderclap headache uh, where, because it, it, it hemorrhages all at once. And the patient can become very, very sick, can become blind, double vision, uh, lose consciousness, and so forth. It sounds like and is a catastrophic event similar to a ruptured brain aneurysm or a hemorrhage within the brain itself. Under those circumstances, that does become an emergency because if somebody has lost vision abruptly like that, we may need to take them to surgery on an urgent basis to decompress the tumor and therefore take the pressure off the optic nerve. Fortunately, pituitary apoplexy is a pretty rare condition. So it sounds like in the majority of these uh, cases, uh, treatment decisions can be made very carefully and, and uh, time taken. And uh, for tumors that need treatment, surgery is the mainstay, uh, often with follow-up radiation therapy, with the exception of the prolactinoma. Correct, yeah. For the most part, patients are going to require some kind of operation for symptomatic tumors 
except in the case of prolactins, uh, prolactin-producing tumors, which they, they are best treated medically. And Dr. Grady, as you look ahead to the future, do you see any new avenues of treatment or new developments in this field? Well, I do, and actually, it's it's not around surgery. It's around medical treatments. Um, as as better drugs are developed that specifically treat growth hormone-producing tumors and ACTH-producing tumors, that's going to be the 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 approach. Um, even pituitary, even the non-hormonal producing pituitary tumors have cell surface markers that that may be unique to those cells alone, so that specific kinds of immunologic therapies may become possible. So I'm a surgeon, and it may well be that these kinds of developments will, will put surgery for pituitary tumors as a historical footnote, like many other things that we get uh, involved in that, that as as we understand more about the biology of the disease, we come up with less invasive ways of, of taking care of them. Well, that sounds encouraging, but also even at the state of the art, it was very nice to hear the uh, rate of complication from the transphenoidal approach is, is so low and patients tend to do very well with these. Yeah, the, the use of the endoscope has really helped us a great deal to minimize some of the, oh, the, the trauma of the operation and, and um and enable us to do as successful operations as we're done with more aggressive types of approaches. Well, Dr. Grady, thank you so much for being with us today and for reviewing with us the approach to pituitary tumors, as well as the uh, treatment and the various ways that these can be approached, and uh, also uh, shedding some light on some possible new therapies in the future that may be even less invasive. We appreciate you being here. Well, thanks very much, and I was uh, glad to be of some help. You've been listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine. To download this podcast or to access others in the series, please visit reachmd.com slash pen and visit Pen Physician Link, an exclusive program that helps referring physicians connect with Pen. Here you can find education resources, information about our expedited referral process, and communication tools. To learn more, visit www.penmedicine.org slash physician link. Thank you for listening.